I'm Nick Newton, joined by Will Miles. Welcome to Stand Up and Holler on this week's episode. The Grinch leaves something for us under our tree. Uh, usually the Grinch takes something away, but this this one left the stinking pile of something under our tree on Christmas Eve. Uh, you got a couple new coaches coming into town. We'll discuss those new coaches, and we will wrap up discussing the college football playoff. We'll, we'll do a short preview of both Bama and Michigan, Texas and Washington. Will, how's it going, man? How's your Christmas? Not too bad. It's been a good time here. We're still up in Philly. It's getting uh, rain today, which is weird. You, at least it's not snowing, I suppose. But uh, um, yeah, a lot of fun with family. Just get to sort of hang around, relax a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's always fun to to do one of these episodes and talk through what's going on with the program. So I did want to remind everybody, like and subscribe to the podcast channel here. Um, if you're on iTunes, go ahead and leave a review. Those sorts of things help us out. Don't cost you anything. So hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, help us out, and uh, we appreciate it. Let's jump right in here. Number seven, transfers to the dark side. Well, I... I, I'm sure I'm like a lot of college football fans here where the transfer portal has really desensitized me to the concept that players come and go every year that you're, I'm getting more used to that concept, but this is not any other transfer. And I, I saw some people spinning it as that <laughs> in terms of, Hey, the guy wants to go where he wants to go, but with seven going where he's going, if you don't understand what that rivalry means, Will, I, I would encourage you to attend that game next year in Jacksonville just to feel a little bit of what that rivalry is in person because Florida and Georgia mean something. And when you see guys bouncing back and forth between the, the these programs, Will, it, it's not something that is sustainable long-term, I think, if you're going to keep the meaning of this rivalry here. So typically when a guy heads out to another school – you know, we do this too. We wish him we wish him good luck. Hey, good luck. Didn't work out. Okay. This one's different though. This one's different. You could have chose to go anywhere you wanted in the country. Any school would have gladly welcomed you. A player of that caliber could have walked in the door of any top 10 school in America, made his demands, and had them met. If you want to play for a contender this next year, you got Ohio State, you got Oregon, you got Texas and Hell. Alabama's out there too if you really want to stay home close to home but Georgia will Georgia we're talking yeah, well, about we're talking about Georgia here will we're talking about Georgia not Notre Dame not USC not Clemson Georgia Georgia if it wasn't enough of a slap in the face to choose to leave that to, to go to Georgia he left that for us under the tree on Christmas Eve and this is the way I'm looking at it some breakups are amicable and some relationships require a clean cut. If you want to do this type of thing, this is a clean cut type of a relationship. So I, you're either a gator or you're gator bait. We need to bring that mentality back. That should be the policy going forward. None of this gator for life garbage as you're walking out the door. And I, look, from that, that's the emotional side, right? Running back is a replaceable posi- position. You, you do have plenty of talent in that room. You don't have ETN talent, but you have plenty of talent in that room. And here's the part I found interesting. Georgia, if you go back under Kirby Smart here, Will, the last three years, there hasn't been a running back that's averaged uh, more than 13 carries per game. There hasn't been a running back in that room. Florida, their top two backs averaged 12 and nine last year with, with, uh, with two and seven, and then 13 and 11 this year. 
it's almost the exact same split up at Georgia. So if you're doing it for playing time, you're doing it for that, – that's an interesting thing because no back has rushed for more than 196 carries since 2019 up at Georgia, and no back has topped 200 carries since Nick Chubb did it in 2017 for Georgia. So Georgia runs the same type of split with Kirby Smart, and we know that backfield's loaded up there. So interesting decision overall, Will. Uh, it sickens me to my core, but – this is what college football is, and I, and I guess no appreciation for these type of rivalries. I feel like an old man on the front yelling about kids on the lawn, but uh, man, this this one this one sickens me, man. I, I'm not okay with this. I was gonna say, you done crying, buddy? You, you done crying? Do, do we need I, to get I, you a no, teddy bear? I'm, I'm gonna be like, pissed about this one for a long time. So no. <laughs> You can make fun of it. I, I'm not happy about it, dude. I'm not happy about this one. So, so look, I think there's two things here. One is that it it sucks to have Kirby Smart come into your house and stuff you in a locker, and and that's what happens when you know we've been talking about for a month now the three guys that we didn't want to see transfer. At least I've said the three guys I didn't want to see transfer were Shamar James, Trey Wilson, and Trevor Etienne. And Etienne decides to transfer. Not only that decides to transfer to a rival. It was funny because before he announced the the decision on, on Christmas Eve, I was going to try to put something out for Christmas that, you know, sort of like the gifts that Florida fans need or something like that. One of the suggestions you made was a stab proof vest for what ETN sticks a knife at our back. And then right as I was sort of writing the thing up or at least outlining the thing, he announces and I was like, ah, I'm depressed enough. I don't feel like doing this right now. But uh, <laughs> um, look, I think when Kevin Durant went to the Warriors, like everybody said that's a bitch move and he went there and he won championships and nobody cares. Durant gets zero credit for winning those championships and ETN just needs to go in eyes open that that's really what he's, what he's walking into. Georgia may win the national championship next year and he'll get a ring and that'll all be well and good, but he won't have participated in building something and Georgia can fail to win a national championship. And then ETN is a part of that failure. So really there's only downside for ETN going to Georgia Unless, like you said, he's going to get more carries, or if he's going, if it's a faster patch to the NFL, he's going to warrant. He's going to, you know, he's going to have some ability to to showcase something that he can't at Florida. Now, I do think Georgia's offensive line is better, and I think he showed a real proclivity to be able to, when he was kept clean, really hit some explosive plays. Will those will those materialize in Georgia? Yeah. Same time. I agree with you. Like you go to Georgia dead to me. Right. And it's like, you know, you were a Gator. That's fine. You're not anymore. And I'm not rooting for you. And I don't want you to do well at Georgia. It doesn't mean that I want you to get injured. I don't want that to happen, but I, I hope that ETN struggles and I hope that Georgia struggles. And that's sort of the way that I want that to go. And, and that's just the reality. Like, it's not like he's sitting there rooting for Florida next year. So why should we be sitting there rooting for ETN? Now, look, have you gone to Oregon? Yeah. I want to see him do well. Have you gone to Texas? Yeah. Until they play Florida. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see him, see him play well, but yeah, it's a rivalry. Now, the one thing I will say is that if you get enough inter-program migration here in the transfer portal, you can kind of build up the hate, right? I mean, this is a way of actually like building up that rivalry now, but it's just like anything else. I mean, when Kirby comes out and stuffs Florida in a locker and wins every game by 40 points, it's not any fun on the Florida side of the rivalry. Same thing. We've been banging Tennessee's bell for, you know, the last 30 years. And that's not even really a rivalry anymore. Like they win and they start talking smack. Like we give a damn. And it's like, well, you know, I mean, you're like two and 29 or whatever it is over the last 31 years. So it's not really a rivalry. At some point you got to start winning. And this is the thing that gets me about like early signing day. There were some people who were like, Oh, you're being really negative. And I'm like, look, I don't like getting my butt stuffed in a locker 
anytime, whether it's recruiting, whether it's transfer portal, whether it's on the field, whether it's, you know, PR, like whatever, right? When Georgia wins a national championship, Bud, Bud Davis wrote a great article for Reading Reaction this week where he talked about recruiting being a zero-sum game, that when you take a recruit from your rival, somebody that you play every year, it's got more value because not only does that recruit make your team better, but it makes your opponent worse. And so that's what Georgia did. Georgia came in and they took a guy who makes Florida better took him off of Florida's roster and put him on Georgia's roster. Georgia got better. Florida didn't. And to be honest, that's sort of been the story of the Florida Gators over the past decade or so is that rivals have come into the state and they've absolutely obliterated Florida. And, and, you know, guys who tend to be out of state didn't grow up loving Florida, didn't grow up going to Jacksonville for that rivalry, probably don't understand the can of worms that they're opening up by making that transfer or completely understand it and are doing it on purpose. And either way means I'm not rooting for ETN. And like I said, the, uh, the uh, the joke you made about the stab proof vests <laughs> so that when he buries that knife in your back, you don't feel it. Hey, that's sort of where we are at this point because Billy Napier is not holding on to the talent that he needs to. And you keep getting stuffed in a locker and Georgia's keep beating you on the field. You got to turn around somehow. Like you either got to start winning on the field or you got to start winning in recruiting. If you lose both of those, well, I don't know what you want me to say other than um, how long until we get the next guy in here. Listen, I, Live, live by the portal, die by the portal. We, we've gotten some good players through the portals. You think of a John Grenard, right? You think of, we've had a few good players come through the portals. You haven't seen a player of this caliber look at the University of Florida and be like, that's not a situation where I can accomplish what I need to. And, and this year, you can arguably you can arguably look at Princely, too, and say it's a similar situation, right? Going, But that's, again, he's going to Ole Miss, you know? All right, you ended up at Ole Miss. So you had two of your top players on each side of the ball look at you and say, yeah, I can do better elsewhere right now. All right, all right. But Prince League went to Ole Miss. Hey, he's coming back to the swamp. We saw Diabate. We played against Diabate too. I can live with that stuff. The Georgia thing means something different. It does mean something different. And I I was in that – I was in the stadium when Georgia – uh, I, I would look, I, you know, I think it's well known on this show that I grew up, uh, I grew up watching Ohio state football. I came down, moved, my family moved down to Florida. I got into the Gators, ended up going to school at Florida, but I, I know we've talked about my, my Ohio state, uh, watching in the past, like you don't mess with Michigan. That's like one of the first things you learn as a kid, that Michigan game's no joke. There's people in Columbus, Ohio that believe Ryan day should lose his job. He's 40 and three in big 10 play. He's lost three games, but they're the last three years to Michigan. That's untenable in Columbus, Ohio. That's the type. I got to be honest, Nick. Right that's now, the, I would kill for Florida being forty and three, and the three losses. But being that's Georgia. how delusional of, of of that's how delusional the hatred is between those two schools. Sure. And to me, when I first started going to Florida, we're coming off. I, you know, I'm I'm thirty. I have, I'm old enough. I have to think about it now. Will I'm thirty seven, and when I first started going, I started in 05, and I graduated in 09. And I was there during the Meyer Tebow years at Florida. We were still handling Georgia. We, we were riding high off the Spurrier years. And you'd hear it from the older Gators that came up through the 70s and 80s that like, hey, beating Georgia like this is unbelievable. But my entire lifetime, that's all I, I had known. So it is something where I didn't truly feel the hatred toward, toward Georgia until they stormed the field. When they when that, that whole team ran on the field, I was there in the stadium in 2007. And they stopped. And again, as a college football fan, as a college football observer who can be objective, that was hilarious to watch. As a Gator, 
it's the moment my hatred was born for them because that's how pathetic it was such a pathetic low move and i i just couldn't stand i've hated georgia since that moment and like it's not it's not like oh i don't like those guys or like i'm friends with people who went to florida state like you know you could share a thanksgiving dinner table with people that went to florida state there's mixed families that that went to both I don't. I'm not friends with anybody that went to Georgia. Will I don't have a lot of friends that went to Georgia. I, I that is one rivalry I take very seriously. And so when you see your top running back head out uh, up there, oh man, that's gonna be tough to see him in that in that jersey next year. But I'll tell you what, Fredo, man, Fredo. I just kept thinking of the Godfather with him. Just he's he's Fredo now. And I, I do think you go to Georgia, you're 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 turning in that Gator legacy. You, you have a chance. You have a chance to do something at the school and be be a big player that helps turn things around, and you're cashing that in for a cheap year up at Georgia. I, I I'm not happy about that move at all. Will? Yeah. Well, I mean, we said this about Lagway last week that one of the benefits of him coming when everyone else was transferring away is that clearly he understands or at least desires to be one of those people who's able to turn things around. Now, the problem you have that's bigger than Georgia and bigger than all the other stuff, and it's, you sort of tied it in with Human Milan uh, as well, is that Billy Napier is losing guys who are productive on the field to the transfer portal. You want to use the transfer portal to bleed off the guys who are going to go play at Tulane and going to go play at Bowling Green and going to go play at, at lower-level schools. What you don't want to do is have guys who just transfer within the conference and then all of a sudden play well. And that's been the problem so far is that the guys who've left by and large have been pretty successful. Guys like Tyron Hopper, guys like Antoine Powell Ryland, those are, you know, Powell Ryland has, I think, 10 sacks this year. That would have been really nice at defensive end for Florida to have a guy who could put up nine or 10 sacks. And did he take a leap? Absolutely. But is that leap because, <laughs> because he just got into a system that used him better? Well, that might be true too. So, I think there's a lot of different things you can say here, but the big one to me is is that you know Florida has a PR problem right now in a lot of different ways. There's PR with all the flips that happened coming in early signing day. There's PR with ETN going to an SEC rival. There's PR with Human Milan going to another SEC school. And right now, people at Florida, at least some of the players at Florida, feel like they they'll either get less criticism from the fan base and from from the general media and that sort of stuff going someplace else. Sort of they can go hide, right? I mean that that's part of it is you get an awful lot of heat when you're at Florida. But the other aspect is is that these guys think they have a better shot to win someplace else. That falls on Napier. That is a hundred percent on Billy Napier selling a vision to these guys. And look. ETN's been there for two years. He's watched what's happened behind the scenes. He's seen what's happened on the field. And he decided that the thing he bought into two years ago is not a vision that is going to come to completion. And I think that's sort of where Florida fans are, right? Is we're sitting here going, what is the vision for the organization? Three straight recruiting classes that have been sort of bleh. And then, you know, transfer portals that have been relatively minimalistic in terms of the guys who've been brought in and the productivity we've gotten from those sorts of things. And you just sort of look at it and go, okay, like, what is the plan? What is the overall plan? And right now, you and I have been talking about it now for months. The plan's DJ Lagway and Hope. And, you know, if, if you're ETN, you're sitting there saying, I got one more year. Lagway, even if he comes in and is awesome, does ETN get to experience that benefit? 
No, not really. So at that point, the 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 vision that's being cast by Billy Napier does not have ETN in it. And I think that's the big problem is, is that typically turnarounds happen pretty quickly. They happen quickly, not just because everybody buys in, but because roster management, you know, the roster management improves and, and that just hasn't so far. So um, Napier's got a lot of work to do. He's got, I've been talking for a while now about the number of withdrawals that Billy Napier has been taking from the bank of Florida, of the Florida fan base and ETN leaving was an enormous withdrawal. ETN going to Georgia is an even bigger withdrawal. And so you got to start making some deposits. And at this point, like, you know, it's funny because I was listening to a, a podcast about communication today and the guy was talking about that you can try to teach people stuff, but at the end of the day, you're only a good communicator if they actually apply what you're trying to teach them. And I think that's the thing is that we can talk all we want about recruiting rankings and, and transfers and Hey, the guys in that room really believe and all that stuff, but it only matters if you win ball games. And at this point, it's no longer recruiting rankings or roster value or positional positional comfort or any of that stuff. It's win the friggin' ball game. And that's what Billy Napier has to do. He has to start winning ball games because without winning, there is no vision to sell because at that point it's just, Hey, come do the thing we've done the last three years. It's like, well, that's not going to work if they end up going six and six again this year or even worse. So there's a lot, I mean, we need deposits. He needs to make deposits quickly. And in some ways, I think, you know, I was joking a little bit with you today that there, it would be useful for Florida to have somebody who runs PR if for no other reasons that you didn't have boosters out on, out on X, like trying to defend the program and Napier, obviously not that great behind the mic. He doesn't need to be, but they need somebody front and center casting a vision for the organization to go out there. Now Saban does an awesome job casting that vision. I think Kirby smart, not quite as much, but he's at least aggressive in doing it. Lane Kiffin does an awesome job of casting that vision while also being critical of the transfer portal and the timing and all that sort of stuff. It feels like in many ways, it's like, whoa, well, we were caught by surprise that the transfer portal is the way it is this year. Well, you don't have a bowl game. You should, you should have an advantage over other people. And we haven't seen that either. We haven't seen them be able to take advantage of it. So look, maybe they will. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I said, let's see where everything settles after the transfer portal period is over. I don't want to evaluate the transfer portal based on the three or four guys that they got in right now. I have my thoughts on each of them, but you know, it's just like recruiting. Like if you've got, if you've got a blue chip offensive lineman, who's like in the two hundreds and you bring in a five-star and you got a couple of guys in the six hundreds, that's an awesome offensive line class. But if that, if that top 10 guy five-star doesn't come in, well, now it's sort of a ho-hum recruiting class. And if that blue chip isn't there either, now you're like, okay, the sky is falling. And yeah, it's only one or two recruits. At the same time, if all you had was the five-star and no one else at, on offensive line coming into a class, you'd still look at it and go, this class is short just from the standpoint of what if that guy gets injured? Like you can't put all your eggs in that basket. And so let's see where the transfer portal settles. Let's see how, how that looks in a month or two and understand who we've got coming to the program. And then at that point, we can really start sounding the alarm. If it just, if the vision has not sold guys uh, in terms of, Hey, you're going to get a lot of playing time. There's a lot of stuff to fix here and we're going to bring guys in, you know, but if they bring in a new linebacker, a new corner and a new safety, well, Hey, now we got to look at that and say, what does that do to the defense? Where does it end up? And how does that relate to my point, making some deposits and winning some ball games? Yeah. You know, I was, I really, where this has taken me where in terms of like, I think what, what it means is I, I think that's something that's getting lost in the transfer portal era is the idea behind what, what makes college football great. 
when I think of David Nelson, I think of him catching that winning touchdown to lock up the game against Oklahoma in Miami to secure a national championship that passed that jump pass from Tebow, right, to win the national championship. What do you think of when you think of Jarvis Moss? Block field goal. Yeah. An extra point. Yeah, cock block, right? South Carolina, right? Uh, what do you think of when you think of Chris Doring? Mm, touchdown catch against Kentucky, probably. Right, right. The moments, right? Chris Doring was a great receiver, but you think of these great moments that are etched in the legacy of a program. And it's not that you don't have the ability to contribute to that as a transfer, but you, you, if you jump around and you're just a one-year guy here and there, or you know, one or two years, what does it does it have? Does it carry the same meaning versus a guy that comes up through the program? Right. So th- this is just a choice the guys are going to have to make, right? Like Steph Curry is going to end up being a warrior for his entire career. That's going to mean something. Michael Jordan, other than the last couple of years, was you know w- when he when he went to the Wizards, Nobody he was a bull, right? A yeah. Reggie Mil- Reggie Miller is a is a pacer, right? right? And you got a guy like Paul Pierce who went to Brooklyn and then to the Clippers after after uh, after Boston. You got a guy like KG who goes from Minnesota to Boston. Okay, well where who does he belong to? LeBron's been all over the place. Who does he belong to? In fact, when LeBron sort of broke a record the first year he was in LA. It's like, oh, you know, like he doesn't belong to anybody. And that doesn't mean LeBron's not a great player. It doesn't mean that LeBron doesn't deserve a lot of the accolades that he gets, but it means he doesn't belong to anybody, right? And and doesn't belong to a fan base specifically. And no one's built that relationship. So like Grant Hill means more to Duke than Zion Williamson. That's just the way it is, right? Grant Hill will always mean more to Duke than Zion Williamson. So it comes right. back to it comes back to what do you want? And I think one of the things that sort of I think is a valuable part of the transfer portal is you get to get what you want, right? ETN historically would not have been able to do this. An interconference transfer without having to sit out, uh, Florida wouldn't have let him out of his NLI and he wouldn't have been to go to Georgia and he would have had to sit out a year to transfer someplace. Now we could say, oh, well, that's better because he wouldn't have gone to Georgia. At the same time, there's a level of intrigue now to Florida, Georgia next year in terms of is Miles Graham and are Miles Graham and Shamar James and Cam Jackson going to make ETN know that they're there, right? Maybe they're gifted enough to do that. Maybe they're not, but there should not be any sort of motivational um, deficiencies there on the Florida side of the ball for that game next year. It should be chippy. And good. I'm glad it's going to be chippy. So I sort of look at it. I go like ETNs burn some bridges. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He's not going to the ring of honor. He's not getting invited back to, you know, alumni days that, that, that fans are going to be at. And that's something that he sacrificed. He's lost something in doing that. He's also gained something in terms of going to Georgia. And he made a determination that that was more valuable to him. I think it's a Florida problem that he thinks that this is a more valuable move than staying here. And so it's it's on Florida to figure out how to make staying at Florida be attractive enough that a player would not do this. And the fact that Florida has not been able to make it attractive enough that a player wouldn't do this is a Florida problem. And so I understand what you're saying. I get it. It sucks. I don't like that he's going to Georgia either. At the same time, let's look in the mirror. And let's say we brought in a guy with a vision that was cast. He's from Texas. He's not a Louisiana he's not a Gator or Louisiana. He's not a Gator historically, yeah. right? So you brought in a guy from Texas with a vision. What I'd like to hear, and I know we're not going to hear it, but what I'd like to hear is what changed. What was it about the vision that got cast two years ago that the promises were not delivered? 
And I think at that point, then it's a question of where the promises carries, where the promises development, where the promises NIL money, where the promises, um, you know, just winning in general. Like, what was it about that vision that in year three, that vision doesn't exist anymore? And, um, you know, because again, I, I think most people want to be loyal to the commitment that they make. Most people want to be convinced they made the right decision. But somewhere in there, Billy Napier and, and Trevor Etienne had some sort of, you know, two years ago they were in lockstep and now they're not. So what happened? And I'm not sure that we'll get that answer. I'm not sure we'll ever know that answer, but Billy Napier should know that answer. If nothing else, he should be able to come out of this with an understanding of what happened. And now he's got to make some course corrections to make sure it doesn't happen with other guys as well. Because if Trey Wilson leaves next year after giving two, two good years to Florida – then what have you accomplished by having him be an all-SEC freshman? You haven't really accomplished anything. He didn't actually become the all-SEC player you needed to deliver things in the future. Now, maybe Trey Wilson is more committed than than ETN, and and you can make those sorts of arguments as well. But you and I have been talking for a long time about, about locking down the state. And like I, I mentioned Bud's article this week, he looked at the propensity of a player to transfer based on the distance his home is from campus. And as you get further and further away, the likelihood of transferring goes up. Florida has not been real effective, at least bringing in blue chip top tier talent from the state of Florida, which means they're at high risk for their best players to transfer out. And we'll see how that develops over the next year or so. Certainly it did not go well when it came to ETN. Yeah. And, you know, certainly too, the coach you, you mentioned too, or it, it, it works both ways, you know, the coaches push guys out too, but for those guys, they didn't push ETN who, out. No, I know with ETN, I know I'm, I wasn't even applying that, but I'm saying it does work both ways in the sense that uh, it's not all the players jumping in the portal all the time. So, I mean, but and it's, it's actually it's a healthy, it's a healthy thing for your organization to be pushing guys out. Cause if you sign 25 guys per high school class, it's a hundred guys over a four year period. Right. You only have 85 scholarships. You're going to have some injuries. You're going to have, and you're going to have guys who transfer out. And so you need at least 15, but you need more than that because you're going to bring in transfers every year too. So let's say you bring in four or five transfers every year. Well, now you got 120 guys over the course of a four-year period, which means you got to get 35 guys who enter the transfer portal. The problem Florida has is that they got guys entering the transfer portal they want to keep. And so, um, you know, you have to just to replace ATN's production or just to replace Human Milan's production requires bringing in someone who's at least on that level. And we'll see, right? I mean, obviously the, the expectation is Joey Slackman is going to be able to take the pen transfer is going to be able to take some of the snaps that human Milan would have gotten and is going to be able to deliver. Justice Boone's going to be back. He's going to be able to take some of those snaps. The defense likely is going to improve just by, just by virtue of it can't possibly be that bad three years in a row. I said that last year, it couldn't possibly be that bad two years in a row. And I was wrong. So, but just by, just by dent of, that you figure they're going to be a little bit better so hey there there's an opportunity here for some of these guys to sort of step up but the problem is if you put slackman next to human milan and somebody transferred out who wasn't going to get any playing time anyway well now you've got two guys who are above average on the on the defensive line and as of right now human milan was the guy you sort of looked at and said hey he's the one who's above average there on the defensive line and now you gotta now you gotta figure out how to replace him it's something that should be considered by the players, if, if the players are in a position where they do have the choice, like an ETN, what is the future value of building a legacy at a single school? Like having the fan base fall absolutely in love with you. There are plenty of Gators from the past that probably have 
great connections through the university and through the people at the university because they were Gators and because they made big plays and big moments or they they brought something to the program during their time here. And that's something that I think players should consider before they bounce around. You got some of these guys playing at their third or fourth school. Like sure. Who, you, you, you ever make a you ever make a bad choice when you're 20 years old, Nick? Yeah, I know, Will. I'm asking a question. <laughs> I'm asking a question here. I'm, I'm not saying, saying there's like, a definitive single answer, but I don't think it's something that gets measured very much. Like I'm looking at like a, a Dylan Gabriel, for example, the quarterback. He's gonna end up at Oregon, mm-hmm. Oregon, USC, Oklahoma, 20 years from now. What which one of those fan bases is gonna really have a deep memory with Dylan Gabriel? Like uh, you see. <laughs> it would have if he stayed there. I think if he would have well, stayed at UCF, he would have he would be a UCF legend. But yep. he went to Oklahoma. He's going to Oregon now. So now he's just a guy that kind of bounces around. And that's what what would what would Dylan Gabriel's legacy have been if he stayed at UCF? And I think well, that's I, something I think to you, consider. Well, I think you're also you're also you're you're projecting something that is important to you that may not be important to well it's up to each player to decide right and 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 it's one right or wrong but i'm saying i don't think that's considered much in these decisions i don't think i think they're looking at what serves me best now and i don't think they're they're measuring even from an nil standpoint or a value standpoint what's the value of building goodwill with one fan base to a a large degree i think that's something that should be considered because there is some value in that well, so it turns out that, again, 20-year-old kids tend not to think about 20 years in the future. Not a surprise, which, which means you can't – why I'm bringing it up. Well, but, I mean, it, it, it's like it, it's like me telling someone who's 18 about all the joys of being a father. And it's like they may listen to me. They may understand it. But but they're not going to make choices based on like the the you know they're not married yet they don't have any of the any you're of right the nobody in college is stuff. thinking about their future will nobody in college <laughs> is thinking about their future no he is thinking about his future he's thinking about <laughs> who's going to get me into the NFL and he's thinking about I got three I or four years once I get there and if Kirby Smart can get me to a first or a second round in this grade, specific case I make ten I or fifteen agree. million bucks I, I get what you're saying but I'm saying I don't I never hear that other part discussed I never hear like you, you got some guys you could build a legacy with the school i think there's some value in that because it's sixth on the list like i'm sure they try to sell it but at the end of the day hey you might be able to go four and eight next year and 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 be a sixth round pick in the nfl if you stay here and on the other side you got kirby saying i'm going to get you into the first or second round and you can come here and actually win some ball games against behind an offensive line that's going to open some holes for you and whether that's true or not the sales pitch, and this is what it comes down to, is like if you go and you buy, if you go and you buy a car, and someone tries to sell you on the air conditioning, you're like, well, look, the the air conditioning may be great. I don't really care. Even in the state of Florida, where that's really important, like there's a lot of things I'm looking at in the car before I care about the air conditioning. Now, the air conditioning needs to be there. I will notice after I buy the car if the air conditioning does not work. At the same time, it's not probably what I was making the buying decision on. And I think that's sort of where you are. Is if all you're selling is, well, look, you'd be a Gator legacy. And, and if we're able to turn this around, think about how people would think about you. If that's all you got for a pitch, probably not enough. That probably needs to come with a giant I'm not NIL that's deal. All they have for a pitch either. I, I think you're taking that out to the extreme there, but I think that's something where I, I there is there is that factor in there that I don't think is being considered at all. And I do think that it is a short term for a guy like ET ETN's different, man. That guy could go anywhere and play anywhere. I'm talking about more like the mid-tier guys, mid-tier guys that could that would be starters, contributors on a team, but they're not necessarily going to play 
five years in the NFL or even maybe two years in the NFL. And they're they're going to be known for who they played for in college. Like, I don't think Dylan Gabriel is going to have this extensive. I, I think he's a great example because so I don't, depends on, I don't it think depends he's going to have an extensive NFL career. But if he was to stay at UCF, he would have he'd be a legend there right now. Maybe, but it also depends on what Dylan Gabriel's career goals are. If Dylan Gabriel wants to be a coach, that guy has been exposed to so many different people who will now be able to get him into positions of advantage. So again, I sort of go back, I go back to it's part of it. It's the, the air conditioning in the car needs to work, especially if you're in the state of Florida, but the the fact that the the fact that the car goes zero to sixty in a certain number of seconds, and the fact that it's a hybrid or an electric or or gasoline or whatever, like those are the things you're weighing. And then when someone goes, "Oh yeah, you'll have a legacy," you go, "Oh, that's pretty cool. I can see that being a valuable addition to my time at Florida." Now, look, I don't think ETN came to Florida expecting to transfer out. I think ETN came because there was a vision that was cast where he looked at it and said, I can be someone who has a legacy who tries to turn around. And the concern that I would have for the overall program is that he looked and said, I can't do that anymore. I'm not going to be able to turn this thing around. If I can't turn around, then I don't have that legacy. And so since I'm not going to have that legacy, I might as well go win. I suspect that's probably the decision-making tree. And so again, I go back to it's on Florida to fix that decision matrix. It is on Florida to sell the vision. It is on Florida to stop getting stuffed in the locker by Georgia every single time. And they see it too. The players see it too. They all look at it and go, all my friends are going to Georgia. Why not join up with them? Why not Kevin Durant it? And in college football, you can do that. There is no salary cap. There is no, you know, you can join up with all your friends and have a super team and do that sort of stuff. ETN's made that choice. I think it may impact him four or five, six years from now. At the same time, he may decide he wants to be a graduate assistant and he'll have an opportunity to do that at Georgia four or five years from now because he's got the experiences and the connections that he made there. So, you know, depending upon what he values, eh, this might be the perfect move for him. I'm not going to wish him well. I don't want him to do well. I want Georgia to crash and burn at the same time. I understand the decision and and I'm willing to, I'm willing to admit or at least willing to postulate that ETN going to Georgia is a symptom of not just what Georgia's doing right, but a symptom of what Florida's doing wrong. And they need to take a look in the mirror when their best player transfers to their biggest rival. All right, let's move on. A couple of new hires here. You got Will Harris coming in the defensive backfield, uh, defensive back coach, secondary coach. I think he worked with the corners out in LA with the chargers this past season, uh, served as a defensive coordinator at Georgia Southern a couple of years ago and worked with the Washington Huskies over the course of four seasons, uh, being promoted from an assistant to the full-time defensive backs coach in 2020 and 2021. Uh, some good results out at Washington. Well, some of the guys he, he worked with uh, ended up being solid NFL draft picks. A lot of good experience for a young guy here uh, coming in, he, coming in to Florida, really following the blueprint along the defense with Austin Armstrong, right? Young, promising coach that has some good pedigree coming into the program. Well, certainly has the NFL experience. Uh, got out of there just in time. He left, and all of a sudden the defense was giving up 63 points to the Raiders. Um, 
I, I think, you know, obviously some pretty good early returns. Gregory Smith um, deciding to to come to Gainesville on early signing day. I don't think you can blame anything like uh, like Phil Simi going to Texas on 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 Will Harris. Um, you know, time will tell. I think this is uh, my commentary on the coaches is going to be the same thing that that for both of them, most likely, which is we thought Corey Raymond was going to be a revelation there at the at the defensive backs coach. And Raymond did not bring in the level of recruit that we thought he was going to bring based on his history at LSU. And certainly Florida did not get the level of performance out of the defensive backs that uh, that we would have expected based on Raymond's pedigree. So I don't know that we necessarily want to look at pedigree and say, oh, that's the only thing we're going to evaluate here. I think we look and say, all right, we got Triquez Bridges who's coming in as a, as a transfer. We've got Greg Smith who's coming in as a recruit. Will Harris is coming in, sort of has his hands on both of those. He is handpicked by Austin Armstrong, which means they should be in lockstep in terms of making sure that the scheme on the back end is meeting expectations for what for what Armstrong Armstrong wants to do overall. And you know the the proof will be in the pudding. Again, this is one of those deposit things, right? I mean, Corey Raymond and Austin Armstrong took quite a few withdrawals from our, from our bank last year, and Will Harris, through no fault of his own, is going to have to make some deposits pretty early on. There's not going to be a whole lot of patience for defensive backs who are who are out of position and not necessarily making plays. So, um, look, I think having a bigger guy like Gregory Smith will be a good thing. I think Harris certainly the NFL pedigree helps. The pedigree of putting guys in the NFL while he was at Washington. Washington helps. He is a West Coast guy, though, right? USC is his alma mater, and then Washington is an experienced San Diego. So it's not like he's got a bunch of relationships with those Florida high schools. And again, I think one of the big things that Florida is going to need to think about is having guys who have relationships with the schools close to the university, because otherwise you get a risk of transfer. So if he spends a lot of time on the West Coast bringing in defensive back prospects, I think that'll be a mistake. I think they need to make sure that they make inroads in Florida. And if that means you take a little bit lesser prospect to start with, as opposed to chasing a five-star in, 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 in Los Angeles, maybe that's a sacrifice you make early on because that five-star probably wasn't going to stick anyway. If history is any indication, guys tend not to come from California to Florida and last for a significant amount of time. Similar situation along the defensive front. Uh, Gerald Chapman comes over from Tulane to coach the defensive line. He was with Carl Durrell at Colorado in 2002, served as D-line coach, and was promoted to interim defensive coordinator. So he had a little bit of play-calling experience in-game. Served as a defensive analyst at LSU in 2021. And in 2019-2020, worked with the Cincinnati Bengals as an analyst uh, with the defensive ends and outside linebackers. Heard some good things about Chapman from Carlos Dunlap in particular. We saw some good quotes out there from Dunlap uh, saying Chapman is just a great coach to work with. So again, not a ton in term, not a ton of years in terms of experience, Will. But this is a coach that he's certainly been around. I, I just read the last five years. I mean, he's got another. He's got about fourteen years of experience coaching at this point. So. But this is his biggest job yet, I would say, as a defensive line coach at Florida. Uh, good opportunity here for a young guy to prove himself. Yeah, well, again, I think good sign that L.J. McCray decided to put his faith in Billy Napier, Austin Armstrong, and in in many ways Gerald Chapman to come in and 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 give him the opportunity. Now, I'm sure that there were some maneuvers and, uh, and and things going on with NIL and stuff associated with that too. But at the same time, Florida was able to get the job done with McCray. And Chapman's going to have high-level talent to work with right off the bat there at edge rusher. Um, 
same thing I said, right? Sean Spencer, his unit did not get the job done. And just if, if coaching can just raise the Gators to average, they've made major progress at corner at safety and then an interior lineman interior lineman pro football focus had them like right at average i think it's actually a little bit worse than that if you look at the overall if you look at the overall success of that line um you know we talked all year about the defensive line allowing the linebackers to roam a little bit that was never the case the linebackers were almost always getting hit by by pulling by pulling guards in the running game and certainly we can talk about gap integrity of the linebackers at the same time um, your defensive line has to make some plays from time to time and Florida's defensive line didn't make very many there weren't a whole lot of sacks wasn't a whole lot of pressure couldn't get pressure with the front four so to me look we'll know pretty early on whether Chapman's making a difference and this again I think goes back to we got to see it, right? You got to make some deposits. It's time for all of these guys. And again, not Chapman's fault, but it's what he's walking into is they're going to have to make some deposits along with Austin Armstrong before we really trust the defense. And I mean, look, Florida fans have gotten burned the last four years. So three of the last four years, Florida's ranked below 100th in yards per play allowed. Florida has not been able to stop anybody in almost half a decade. And 2019, 2019 was the last time Florida had even a halfway decent defense. And so, look, it's been a while. We've we've got some PTSD from watching this defense, particularly against LSU. Um, we, we've got some PTSD. You know, the game where they couldn't stop Joe Burrow and the game where they couldn't stop a, a, a counter. And then this game last year when Jaden Daniels went for like 9,000 yards. Like those sorts of things build up over time. These guys are going to have to make some deposits. And the good news is, is that just moderate improvement in each of these spots probably leads to significant improvement on defense because there are some there are some leaky spots for Florida specifically at safety corner and linebacker and if those can get fixed just to average I think the defense gets way way better the 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 challenge for Chapman is going to be with human Milan leaving can he raise the level back? You know, Human Milan was one of the better defensive linemen. You can complain about inconsistency. You can complain about his play against the run, especially when they dropped him into coverage. I think all those are legitimate criticisms. But the question is, compared to what? And if you compared him to the person who came in to spell Human Milan, Human Milan was much better. And so – how are we going to build that into the defense? Is it going to be LJ McCray? Is it going to be another one of the defensive line recruits from this 2024 class? Or is it going to be guys like Searcy and Tyreek Sapp and some of the Cameron James and some of the other guys who are going to have to step up who've already been recruited? I think it's probably going to be a mix of all those things, but Chapman's going to be a key to all that. Yeah, got to get some pressure on that quarterback. It's been a couple of years since we've seen that on a consistent basis. All right, let's move on to college football playoff. Let's start at the Rose Bowl, Michigan, Alabama. The Wolverines are one-and-a-half-point favorites, which uh, was amazing to me. I, I don't know how you bet against Saban right now. Well, like, it's it's playoff time. Michigan, they got to prove it, man. They, they haven't been great in these big spots. They've had three great seasons where they've gotten to this point here, but they have not been great in their playoff showings so far. Uh, this Michigan team, McCarthy, Absolutely outdueled Kyle McCord and really was a big reason why Michigan had no problem getting by Ohio State in Ann Arbor to close the season out. He's an impressive quarterback. He's he's a very good player in that running game for Michigan, certainly strong. Uh, we've seen Bama just completely transform this back half of the season, and they're playing much better football. Although, yeah, fourth and 31 against Auburn, they've had their moments too. So this Bama team is... You almost wonder which one's going to show up, but it's Nick Saban in the playoffs at the Rose Bowl. 
I don't think we're going to get the good, the, the the better version of Alabama against Michigan. So if they want to win this game, if the Wolverines want to win this game and Harbaugh wants to get over the hump, they're going to have to really bring it against Bama. Yeah, I'm really curious to see what happens here. So the Michigan defense was really good this year. They were fourth overall in yards per play allowed. But Penn State was number one. Iowa was number two. Ohio State was number three. And Nebraska was number seven. And the quarterback play in the Big Ten was just atrocious all year long. And so I'm not sure whether those numbers are actually reflective of how good they are or whether those numbers are inflated by the fact that Penn State, you get to play them every once in a while. And Penn State's quarterback play was just awful. And Iowa's offense was just terrible. And Nebraska's offense was bad. And then you got Illinois and Indiana and Purdue. And it's like, who who am I scared of when I'm when I'm looking at these teams that they're playing? At the same time, you can only play the schedule that you play and Michigan dominated that schedule. So a really interesting point for me is if you look at the overall differential in terms of expected points added, the best team in the country was actually Oregon, followed by Ohio State, then Georgia, then Penn State, then Michigan, then Florida State, and then Alabama. And in fact, Alabama is, or Michigan's almost twice as good as Alabama in terms of the expected points added. The EPA defensive stats for Alabama is really not that great. Their offense is pretty much on par with Michigan. So really what you're making is, is you're making a strength of schedule argument. You're saying that the SEC is that much better. The problem is that the Auburn team that, that Alabama almost lost to <laughs> isn't really much better than some of the teams that Michigan played. So certainly Alabama can be stopped. The question is, will they? And I think this one comes back comes down to McCarthy versus Milrow, right? I mean, it, it, duh, it comes down to the quarterbacks. But Milrow started out the year really, really rough. And now Michigan's had a month to prepare for him. And the question is, when you when you don't have a month to prepare for a guy who can run like that, then um, you know you can't necessarily be ready for everything they're going to throw at you. I think in this case, Michigan should be pretty much ready for what Jalen Miller has done well all year long. The question will be, how does Alabama adjust off all of that? McCarthy certainly has more experience than Milroe, played in these games last year. I think if if you told me to pick, I'd probably pick Michigan just because I think the fact that McCarthy played in the playoff last year and Milrow did not probably gives Michigan an advantage. And especially if you think about like what happens if you throw a pick early, do, do things sort of snowball? If you're Alabama, I think it does. If you're Michigan, I'm not sure that it does. And um, considering that Michigan probably has Alabama's signals at this point, um, you know, <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I think I'd probably go with the Wolverines. Though, you know, look, I'm not going to be surprised if Alabama wins, but. This was not a great Alabama team. It was a good Alabama team. That's actually the argument that I made when I was arguing in favor of Florida State as much as it pained me to be in the playoff is if it was a great Alabama team who'd lost to a great Texas team and then Alabama just blown everybody out the rest of the year and you're like, look, they played one of the best four teams in the country and they lost to them, but they blew everybody else out. I'd be like, okay, but this team barely beat Arkansas. So, you know, it, it's not as though this is like the best Alabama team we've ever seen. It might be one that Saban's having fun coaching. And certainly I'm sort of in, in some ways, if he'll retire after he wins a championship, I wouldn't, I'd sacrifice the Alabama championship for, uh, for Saban being gone. But uh, I'm, I'm probably leaning towards Michigan in this one. Um, I, I think the Wolverines get it done. Well, if Pat McAfee were here, he could lead us in a round of hail to the victors. And then pause for a second and say, give me Alabama. Because I think Nick Saban and the Tide in this spot, uh, I, I trust them a lot more than I do Michigan. At, but I'll, Michigan has been prepping 
they they've had a beat Georgia sign up there. They've had a beat Georgia sign. They've been ready for this moment. They got smoked by Georgia a couple of years ago in the Orange Bowl, and this program has been building to this moment. So, I mean, I know the whole room collectively groaned when they heard it was Alabama on TV, and then they quickly tried to to recover in in that moment. But uh, that I don't think this Michigan team is going to shy away, and I'm hoping for a good game. But I I'm not betting against Saban and the Tide, so I'm expecting the Tide to roll here into the national title game. Let's go down uh, on New and this is New Year's Day at 5 p.m. The Rose Bowls. Let's go New Year's night. I think it's at 8:45 to kick off Eastern Time. Sugar Bowl, Texas versus Washington. We saw this as a bowl matchup in the Alamo Bowl uh, a year or two ago here, Will. But you got Steve Sarkeesian coaching against his old school at Washington. DeBoer, Penix, great story up in Washington. Explosive offense that can score on anybody in the country. But the real question here for me, Texas, four-point favorite, Quinn Ewers going up against that Washington defense. We have not seen good things out of that Husky defense at times this year. On the other hand, in their biggest moments, when they played Oregon twice, Washington's really stepped up and played well. And Texas is not one of those teams. Their, their program's turned around a lot. They're not automatic. They've played some close games against some mid-level teams this year, too. So... Washington can absolutely get this done here, but I think the smart money would be following Texas in this one. Will, yeah, I'm I'm taking Texas in this one mainly because so Texas average margin of victory eighteen point six points per game for one score games, average margin of victory for Washington fourteen point one, but seven one score games. And you know, look, sometimes you end up in those roles. Seven one-score games for for Auburn back in 2010 when Cam Newton led them to a national championship. But going seven and zero in one-score games is an unusual thing. Those things tend to even out. So two one-score wins over Oregon for Washington could have very easily gone the other way, um, especially the first meeting. Second meeting, Oregon got kind of a junk touchdown real quick. But that's sort of the thing, right? Is that Oregon got a touchdown in like 25 seconds when they got the ball back down 10 with like two and a half minutes left and gave themselves a shot to win the game. And that is the weakness for Washington. So their defense giving up 5.4 yards per play compared to 4.9 for Texas. Their 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 defense, 0.181 is their EPA. Bigger is worse. And it's 0.082 for Texas, expected points added per play. Um, the Texas offense, not as not as prolific as the, uh, as the Washington offense. Certainly, if Penix just comes out on fire, then the game will be close just because Washington won't be able to be stopped either. But I don't really expect Washington to be able to stop Texas. And I think there's a real advantage to, to, to where this game's being played, right? I mean, the game is being played in Louisiana. It's close to Austin in comparison to the Washington fans having to come down. I think you get a significant home field advantage and it, you know, in the, in the Michigan Alabama game, there's really not a home field advantage there being out in Pasadena, right? I mean, you're going to have fans from both sides, but it's not like it's going to be dominated by one or the other. And you think about like the game that Florida played Oklahoma back in 2008, the game being played in the Rose Bowl or in, in the Orange Bowl, where all those guys who were from Miami who were on the Gator team had all their family there and friends there and all that sort of stuff. It sort of felt like they were at home. Look, Louisiana is not going to be home for Texas, but they take a bus to this thing, right? They don't take a plane. Um, and, uh, and and I think that makes a difference. So I'm, I'm going to take – Texas probably in a one-score victory. I think it'll be close. I think Washington keeps it close, but I think the Huskies, uh, the Huskies luck runs out, and uh, we got a Texas-Michigan final. Yeah, you got Texas-Michigan. I'll, I'll go with Texas-Bama. I think uh, that was a great game too in Tuscaloosa. Bama didn't really have 
cooking to the degree they do now. So it'll be interesting. I think that would, normally I'm not in favor of seeing rematches in title games. That's what I'm actually looking. I would look forward to that one. That that could be a real good game, but we'll, we shall see. So the Rose and the Sugar Bowl, Michigan, Bama, Texas, Washington on New Year's Day. Uh, I saw a great tweet. Uh, was it yesterday? I believe the guy was talking. This guy on Twitter was saying, uh, "Yo, I'm sitting here watching UNLV Kansas, and I'm getting bombarded with ESPN reminding me of when the college football playoff is." If I'm watching UNLV Kansas, I'm definitely going to be watching the big games. So we 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 know we know when those games are. So well, the only for... one I'm not watching is Georgia Florida State because the Seminoles can't field a team. So so that's uh, yeah. that's my last question. That situation is getting more and more pathetic by the day with the amount of op- opt outs on both sides. Georgia's got a lot of opt outs too. They got a lot of guys not playing. What a joke for the Orange Bowl though. Like, what do we got to do to incentivize? create an incentive structure for these games to not turn into a total joke like like the orange bowl this year well so two things they're expanding to 12 teams in the playoff and so you know you're going to get the the poland weed eater bowl and then you're going to get the orange bowl hosting a playoff game will probably be the way that works and then the other aspect is is and i think um college football is reactionary it's always been reactionary they don't change until they have to and if you look they still don't have a contract for next year's playoff games and i think one of the reasons they don't have a tv contract for next year's playoff games is because they can't guarantee to their tv partners that this kind of crap isn't going to happen right and if espn is going to pay for some bowl package that involves having all the ancillary bowls as well as the playoff well they're going to want to monetize those bowls as best they can so look College football will react because they're reactionary and especially reactionary to money. Early signing day is going to go away. They're going to move the transfer window to after like all the bowl games are played, but before the playoff games are played or something like that, they'll find a way to move it back. Honestly, it would just, if they just move back the time that you can enroll, like, cause the, the actual classes don't start until like January 20th. Like, so you take a month off as long as you allow guys to register and transfer in that time period. So I think what they'll end up doing is basically setting the transfer portal time as the day after new year's day. And then they'll set, signing day to be sometime in January or February. And they're going to actually have a post season, like an off season schedule that matches after the postseason, or at least after the vast majority of the postseason stuff that's going on. And there'll just be people who end up in the, in the, in the, in the playoff are going to be disadvantaged players. There will be disadvantaged in terms of their ability to look at their options. Um, but look, that happens in the NFL all the time, right? Like coordinators who get knocked out of the playoffs early have an opportunity to interview while the guy who's leading the team to the Super Bowl has to wait until that week between the Super Bowl and, and the NFC or AFC championship game to interview for head coaching jobs. And sometimes that impacts what they can get. I think it'll be the same thing with college football. I think they're just going to move everything back. And the again, the reason it's earlier is actually for the benefit of the student. Like Tate Rotemaker deciding to transfer out, he's deciding to transfer out because of the timing, but the timing is is where it is to give him and other programs time to look at each other and say, is this is this a marriage we want to consummate, you know, and and not having to do it in a in a day or two after the season is over. At the same time, I think Roadmaker doesn't particularly like having to make the decision that way. I think Florida State certainly doesn't like him having to make the decision that way, and college football doesn't like him making the decision that way. But ESPN really doesn't like him making the decision that way. Yeah. And so that's what happens, right? I mean, ESPN, CBS, And Florida Fox, State really cares about what ESPN thinks right now. 
that's really <laughs> that's really what I'm thinking. They got well, I mean, in, in many Murphy, ways, though, it, the quarterback, backup quarterback from Texas, just committed to Duke. You don't think that guy wants to be on the sideline for the Sugar Bowl and the national title game potentially, and that Texas would love to have their backup quarterback? And it, it, that's well, nor should wild. you, right? I mean, like it's it's kind of ridiculous. It'd be like if if Patrick Mahomes was uh was a free agent after this year and and the offseason started after the wild card round of the playoffs and all of a sudden Mahomes just like signed with the Colts <laughs> like like, yeah. like after the first round really? of the playoffs and and now you've got I don't even know who the backup is there in Kansas City it used to be the, the kid from Michigan Henny who was playing with Brady but I don't the even think Henny's Michigan. the backup the, anymore the old man from Michigan the old yeah. man from Michigan whatever he's a kid he's younger than me but uh <laughs> actually I think he might be a couple years he's older in college but, when I was yeah but there, anyway, but... <laughs> so the 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 point is is that um, it's bad when your off season is at the same time as your playoff. Yeah. So if that means you got to start games in August, like August fifteenth, and just go, like maybe that's what you have to do. But college footballs look they Long respond they respond to dollars. They have always responded to dollars, and in fact, in many ways, the response to dollars is usually slower because what the the slow march has been dollars into the players' pockets, and so they've drugged their feet and drugged their feet and drugged their feet and have never changed whether it was better for their TV partners or not because having to share that TV money with the players was a worse deal than than getting a lower television contract. And now the players have become much more savvy in terms of the power that they wield. I don't, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. They have more power, more savvy. And so if I'm a player, why do I go out and injure myself trying to play for Texas when I know I'm going to play for Duke next year? Like there's no sense in doing it. Or just locking in your spot, getting it done with Duke. So you have a spot next year too. So so all that stuff is involved. So what will end up happening is, is that the TV partners will yell. And there will be an adjustment made in order to do that. It'll all probably be tied in with whatever the heck happens to Florida State in terms of their lawsuit against the ACC. That may be like a two or three year endeavor to get all the way through that. Or they're going to have to set up a GoFundMe for about $500 million to get out of all of the uh, all, all the financial commitments that they have there. And that to me is the more fundamental thing is that this is a – so in the NFL, the Raven – or the NFC South does not have a different television contract than the AFC North. Mm-hmm. And so if the AFC North signed a TV contract with Fox and it was like, we're going to give them all of our television rights until 2035. And the NFC South signed a contract that said, well, you know, we're going to do it year to year. Like, yeah, there's more risk on the front end for the NFC South, but they get to renegotiate every year. That's essentially what's happened is that the SEC and the Big Ten built opt-outs in their TV contracts, and the ACC did not. And so now you've got this weird conglomerate of teams with conferences with different, completely different financial pictures, and now they're trying to negotiate what a TV deal is going to look like for a 12-team playoff but each of them has a different incentive structure. And so it, it's fascinating. It's stupid, but it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, to me, the calendar changes when uh, the calendar changes when the money makes it change. Yeah. Slow March is, is the right word. It's just the whole thing's a slow March. They, they slowly, gradually will go in, into more and more playoff games likely. And I, I don't think we're anywhere close to where this is going to end up right now. So for those of you who are frustrated with it, I think there are going to be some loose ends cleaned up in the next few years, but the sport has definitely radically shifted for 
uh, you know, well, the, and permanent so, for the for the future. It's a radical shift that we're undergoing right now. So look, I, I had a boss years ago who used to tell me that that change is either an opportunity to fail. It, change is an opportunity. It's either an opportunity to find an advantage or it's an opportunity to fail. Yeah. And so that's what this is. This is change. And one of the things I really liked about Bud's article, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the idea that he said, I, I think you should have a general manager. And the reason I agree with him is that this is an economic problem now. Putting together a roster and building a roster and and figuring out how to optimize the NIL dollars that you have for that roster is now an economic problem. And Billy Napier, for all of his positive qualities, is not an economic whiz kid based on training. He just doesn't have it. He's a football coach who has a degree in exercise and sports science or something like that, which is the perfect profile for someone who's going to teach people how to play football. But it is not a great profile for someone who's going to teach or who's going to do optimization and roster management of a multi-million dollar name, image, and likeness um, program for college athletes. And that's the reality. So I think there's an opportunity here. Florida has the ability to adapt. Other programs have the ability to adapt. The fact that the fact that uh, the Texas quarterback Malik, what was his last name? Murphy. Malik Murphy decides to go to Duke is an advantage for Duke. Duke went and poached the backup quarterback off of Texas off of a team that has a chance to win a national championship. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, he's a more talented backup quarterback than many of the teams that are not playing. So Duke has an opportunity to do that. Is a little bit dirty? Does it feel a little bit wrong? Yeah, it does. But you know what? Duke's going to be a lot better next year because of it. And I think in some ways, that's just the nature of college football is it's always been a dirty business. There's always been bags handed out under the table. Now it's just these guys have the ability to move with bags that are significantly more and significantly above table. And so, um, you know, if, if you're not going to take advantage of those edges, you're either using it as an opportunity to gain an edge or using it as an opportunity to fail. If I'm Florida, I'm trying to find every single possible way to use it as an opportunity to get an edge um, so that I can, you know, so that we don't have to talk about ETN transferring to Georgia. So we start talking about guys coming from Georgia to Florida. Fredo. That's that's gonna be my reference from now on. Call him Fredo. Yeah. All right. Go, go change the nameplate. Change it to Werfel. Then you don't have to worry about it. I think I saw Danny Werfel is offering people to send in a jersey. He'll send an autographed jersey back with it. <laughs> not not, not, not a bad gig right there. Oh, good to have a good to have a legacy out of school, huh? Will good to have uh, you a, know good, good to turn, have a turn, legacy. Turns out at quarterback at Florida when you win a national championship, yeah, Oscar. there's yeah. there's quite a little value there. Yeah, you are correct. Sure. When a statue goes up of you outside the organization, you do get treated. Quite I'm well. going to write a letter. We'll write a letter. Scott Strickland gets plenty of letters. He probably doesn't get many about building David Nelson a statue, but I'm going to write that letter. Damn it. Let's get that going. Let's get David N Nelson statue, Jarvis Moss statue. Great moments in Gator history. We'll make a whole garden out of it and it'll be great. Now tear down the chemistry building. Don't need that thing. anymore. <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's the chemistry team ranked? I don't know. They got me out there as an alumni, so they're kind of screwed. <laughs> Actually, I'm chemical engineering, so they can leave that hole up. <laughs> All right. For Will Miles, I'm Nick Newton. Happy New Year, everybody. Have a great week. And go Gators.
Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Holler. If you're interested in more information from me and Nick, you can go over to readandreaction.com. You can like and subscribe our YouTube channel here at Read and Reaction, or you can go to patreon.com slash readandreaction to support us, get extra information, and we do ask anythings over there every once in a while as well. So check us out. Thanks for listening.